Stanford University. The Clayman Institute for Gender Research at Stanford University, creating a more equal society for women and men through data-driven research and public education. So welcome to all of you. I'm so pleased that you're here today and we have the opportunity to discuss dual career academic couples and university policies about um, hiring and hiring practices. I'm Londa Schiebinger, the, Clayman, uh, the director of the Clayman Institute for Gender Research here at Stanford. And I'd like to start by thanking my staff. Without staff, nothing happens. Lori McKenzie, the associate director, and Ann Enthoven, who has um, prepared this conference. I also would like to thank the sponsors of the conference. That is the Clayman Institute Endowment. So we are here uh, to discuss dual careers in academia this afternoon. I will first give some of the key findings from our report, and then we will have two panels. One is a panel of university administrators who deal with these issues. They're, they will um, speak for about 10 minutes each, and we'll have a good chunk of time, about 45 minutes, for discussion. Then we're having a panel of dual career couples who are here at Stanford, and um, we have two generations, so that we have younger people and uh, well-established people. So a warm welcome to our panelists. Well, I don't know. So a warm welcome to our panelists, and thank you very much for being here and sharing your knowledge with us. Now, I also want to thank uh, Rick Banks and Jennifer Eberhardt, who've been the poster children for our conference. You've seen their shining faces um, everywhere in our uh, advertising. And let me start with their story. I wish you knew this couple, because they're just fantastic people. Rick Banks is the Reynolds Professor of Law, and Jennifer Eberhardt is an Associate Professor of Psychology. They live dual career lives at Stanford University. Working at the same institution is critical, says Rick, or more precisely, being able to live in the same place is critical. But achieving that was not easy. Like many academics, Rick and Jennifer met at graduate school. Their commitment to supporting both careers while maintaining a single household was tested as job opportunities moved them across the country. At one point, Jennifer held a faculty position at Yale, while Rick had a fellowship um, at Harvard and was also uh, held a federal clerkship in New York. After several stress-filled years, Rick went on the academic job market and he received several offers, but when Stanford offered Jennifer a position as well, the deal was made and they moved west. Today, they're both happily tenured here at Stanford, leading productive lives and raising three children. They have got the cutest little kids. Meeting the needs of dual career academic couples while ensuring the high quality of university faculty is one of the great challenges facing universities today. Academic couples comprise 36% of the American professorate, representing a deep pool of talent that universities cannot afford to overlook. So these, these are, um, all of the information I'm giving is in our report. And you can see that this is from our study, this is the academic workforce, and 36% of our respondents said that they had an academic partner. The number of couple hires at universities is on the rise. This has in increased from about 3% in the 1970s to around 13% in the 2000s. 
Despite the sizable number of academic couples in the workforce, institutional approaches to couple hiring tends to vary dramatically and can be ad hoc, often shrouded in secrecy, and certainly inconsistent across institutions. So in last August, the Clayman Institute released this report, um, as you can see, the uh, dual career academic couples, what universities need to know. We spent, oh, I don't know, three or four years preparing the report. We surveyed 30,000 full-time faculty, tenured and tenured track, and reviewed dual career hiring practices at 13 leading universities across the United States, both public and private. And our universities, we feel, are a representative sample. We had East Coast, West Coast, in the middle, North, South, that sort of thing. So one purpose of our study was to understand how institutions do partner hiring so that they might do a better job of it. There are three key reasons for universities to take a new look at couple hiring. First is excellence. Our study suggests that couples more and more vote with their feet, leaving or not considering universities that do not support them. Among couple hires in our study, 88% so a huge proportion, reported that they would have refused an offer had their partner not found an appropriate position. Support for dual careers opens another avenue by which universities can compete for the best and the brightest. The second reason for universities to take a new look at couple hiring is diversity. Over the past decades, universities have worked very hard to attract women and underrepresented minorities, and in many instances have been meeting with great success. But with greater diversity comes the need for new hiring practices, of which partner hiring is one. You can't really take a new diverse population and cram them into the structures which were developed for other kinds of lives. So it's very important that as we're looking for diversity, we're also morphing the structures at our universities to fit diverse lives. And thirdly, the quality of life. Faculty, faculty today are a new breed determined more than ever to strike a sustainable balance between working and private lives. To enhance competitive excellence, universities are increasingly attending to quality of life issues such as housing, childcare, schools, elder care, and also partner hiring. While often costly upfront, addressing the challenges of faculty members' personal lives may help universities secure their investments in the long run. New hiring policies require a clear understanding of the academic workforce and the demographics of that workforce, as well as the cultural practices and values of faculty in the 21st century. We identify three ways, well, we're identifying three ways that couples enter universities. Not everybody's story is the same, but there are patterns. And I think it's important that we develop a language for talking about this. As we're creating new structures, we need words to describe these things. So of the 36% um, percent of our participants who said, I have an academic partner, there were three different ways that they entered universities. So as dual hires, independent hires, and what we call solo hires. So you may like our terminology or not. So dual hires is a commonly used term. 
Dual hires are couples where both partners are hired as part of a negotiation. The majority of dual hires are appointed as sequential hires, like Rick and Jennifer Banks. Typically one partner, the first hire, in this case Rick, receives an initial offer and then negotiates for, in this case, his partner or Jennifer. This second partner who enters the deal through a series of negotiations that generally include a full-blown campus visit and interview, we call the second hire or the partner hire, either one of those, in order to overcome the negative terms that often apply to the second hire. And I think we really want to move away from that. You may all have heard of Drew Faust, president of Harvard University. It was possible that at one point she would have been a second hire at Harvard University. I think her partner Charles Rosenberg did not accept that position. So you never know who this second hire is going to turn out to be. And I think that it's sometimes it's just arbitrary who the first hire is and the second hire. So we either want to call them a partner hire or a second hire. Now dual careers also include joint hires down here. Joint hires are a small but growing number of couples who are a known couple and are recruited together by a university. These couples often market themselves and are approached by universities as a package. Now we have a case study of such a couple, Professors uh, Shaw and Batia at Harvard and MIT. This is on page 18 of your report, which you can look at afterwards. And what's nice is it shows also the collaboration between neighboring institutions and how they recruited a pair. Now please note our language here also. We use the term partner and partner hiring rather than spouse or spousal, part, uh, spousal hiring. Because in our survey, and the reality about US faculty is that it includes married and unmarried partners. And it also includes same-sex and heterosexual couples. And we also included um, an analysis of same-sex same couples in our uh, story. So we like to call them partners and talk about partner hiring. Now a second way that couples enter the university is by independent hires. These are couples in which each partner secured employment independent of their couple status. So either they were a couple, this is the majority of them, either they were a couple, there were two jobs advertised at the same or at neighboring institution and they applied and oh happy day they got the jobs. The other way that there are independent hires is they are first hired and have faculty positions and they meet at the university, fall in love, and presumably live happily ever after. So we have an example of the latter, which is the minority. It's only 20% of the independent hires are actually meet at the university. And we have an example of Professors Cook and Haney um, at Penn State showing that. Now the third way one partner enters the university, we, we, we didn't come up with a good term for this, so you can improve our language here. We call them solo hires. Um, we had various terms we were playing around with before, but that's what we decided to settle on. This is a solo hire is where um, our respondent said, yes, my partner is an academic, but in fact, that person had not found a job. So um, these are people who can easily be hired away from a university because they are not a settled couple. And um, we have an example of such a pair 
um, at Duke, Susan Rogers, professor of computer science there, and her partner, who thinks of himself as an academic, did not, in fact, get a job at Duke, though Duke does a very good job in all of this, um, but he's working for, MI, uh, for IBM. He has a good position there. Now, I want to return to the diversity issue that I spoke of very quickly before. Um, in our study, we found that among same-sex couples, you have about the same percent of couples um, with same-sex partners as couples overall in our survey. We found that underrepresented minorities have fewer academic partners than the rest of the population. They're more often single. Um, but we found that it, couple hiring is an important issue for bringing underrepresented minorities to the university. Couple hiring is particularly important for recruiting and retaining female faculty. Women faculty more likely than men are more likely than men to be in an academic partnership. So you can see that women are 40% 40, 40 of our respondents have academic partners and 34% of the men respondents have academic partners. The big difference in the academic workforce between men and women is that 20% of men have stay-at-home partners, only 5% of women, and the women tend to be single much more often than the men. But the difference between men and women goes beyond the numbers to encompass the relative value men and women attach to their partners' careers. Now, in our survey, we asked a question. Whose career comes first in your relationship? Who follows whom? Very important issue. Half of the men raised their hand and said, mine, me, we follow my career. The women, so here you see half of the men responding that way. The women overwhelmingly, 59%, said both careers are equal. Now, I have some advice for couples. Talk to each other. I mean, really, there's something wrong here. Now, there's a problem in this asymmetry between men and women's values that leads to one of the most important findings in our study, and that is that a good number of women simply will not accept a job unless partners are accommodated. Women seem to care more about this than the men. In our study, the number one reason women refused an offer was because their academic partners were not offered appropriate employment in the new location. These findings have Im significant implications. In order to recruit top women, especially in science and medicine, where they are partnered with other people in those fields at a very high rate, institutions need to have a clear process in place to vet partners for hire. Now, another thing that we found is that historically, men more than women have used their market power to bargain for positions for their partners. Men make up only 26% of our second hires, which means that women are 74% of second hires. I find this shocking. An important finding in our study is that recruiting women first breaks the stereotype of senior academics seeking to negotiate jobs for junior partners. Remarkably, more than half, so 53%, of female first hires who were recruited as full professors are partnered with men of equal rank. And by contrast, only 19% of, 
of male first hires who were recruited as full professors are partnered with females of equal rank. Now, one of our, the universities in our study use, uses this information strategically by approving university funds for dual hiring only when a woman or an underrepresented minority is the first hire, and in this way seeks to address both diversity and equality issues across the institution. Again, and this is important, senior women who are hired first more often than men seek to place partners who are equals in term of rank and status. So understanding how men and women think about and value their partnerships may help universities refine policies governing couple hiring in ways that can promote greater gender equality. Now we turn to university policies concerning dual career couples. Now many universities have offices for dual career couples. They have dual career programs and they deal with non-academic partners, so say the partner is a lawyer or an administrative assistant or a firefighter, whatever the partner might be, um, this office will assist as well. An entire study needs to be done of this. We did not treat this issue in our study. We looked at this pathway where the partner is an academic and that is what we will talk about this afternoon. Universities are organized differently and consequently there is no one best way to assist dual career couples. All institutions that hire partners are quite clear that they do so on a case-by-case -case basis, looking carefully at the partner's qualifications alongside institutional priorities. Some universities have consistent procedures for initiating and seeing through that process, whereas others do not. And I hope that this is something that our panelists will address later on. So there are many issues that we hope, I hope that we will discuss this afternoon. Should universities have a written policy or codified practices, or is it best not to? When should job seekers raise the issue of a partner for hire? Who at the university brokers the deal? What kind of funding models are there out there? What counts in the hiring decision? When faculty, when departments think about hiring a partner, what counts in their decision making? What types of positions are there for partners to be placed in? How does geographic location impact universities' couple hiring? If a university is more isolated in a college town, um, that university probably has to be more proactive about couple hiring rather than if you're in New York or Boston or someplace where there are lots of universities around. And then why is it important for universities to evaluate their dual hiring processes? Of our 13 universities, we only found one that had any kind of evaluation process in place. Couple hiring is a sensitive topic because it challenges cherished ideals of academic advancement, including open competition, fairness, and merit. So I know you can't read this, but you can find it on page 50 in the report. We asked faculty about their perceptions of couple hiring. And um, as I said, we surveyed 30,000 faculty, so we got a view of this from across the country. 43% agreed or strongly agreed that couple hiring prevents open competition. 
So not the majority, but that's a major concern out there. Uh, 26, only 26% strongly agreed or agreed somewhat that couple hiring disrupts the intellectual direction of the department, so not such a big worry. Um, faculty also said, so 71% agreed that couple hiring increases the number of women on faculty and um, about half of the faculty agreed that it increases the number of underrepresented minority, or at least that's their perception. The reality is that, academic, that the academic workforce has changed and that universities increasingly hire couples to attract top talent from the broadest range of applicants. A number of universities now take great pride, as one administrator told me, in working collaborative with departments across their institution to address the dual career issue. In our published report, we detailed the process by which partners are hired and the university's, uh, university policies governing or practices governing that process. So if you look at part three in our report, it serves as a guide or at least a guide to the issues for administrators and universities seeking to develop procedures for academic partner hiring, as well as a guide for couples seeking to negotiate a couple hire. So let's look at some of the key issues here. I think one of the key issues is whether a university should have a written policy or not have a written policy. Um, in our study, five of our 13 universities have written policies guiding dual hiring. The others rely on sometimes very robust practices, informal practices that have developed over the years. Now, if you look for the arguments for having a written policy, administrators thought that it created a competitive edge, that it gave the university, the university could speedily reply when a partner issue was raised. Um, universities felt that, it, that having a policy facilitated, facilitated clear communication among key players across the university. And they felt that it ensures equitable treatment of all climates. Now, having a policy, the hope is that clear and coherent protocols remove the sense of intrigue and favoritism that can adhere to partner hiring. That is to say, it brings greater fairness to the process. So it would mean that requests for partner hires would trigger a known and agreed upon process that would work consistently throughout the institution. And I think one thing that is good is that to get to the point of having a written policy, you have to have lots of debate and discussion among the faculty about what the policy should be. So for these reasons, the number one recommendation of our report is that universities implement a written set of guidelines. It is important to point out that written protocols do not in themselves determine outcomes. We are not suggesting that people hire partners. We're suggesting that they have a process for doing that. Universities that have established dual hire protocols state openly, often on their websites, that these guidelines do not guarantee employment to any candidate. Administrators emphasize that each dual hire is unique and must be considered on its own merits. University, in other words, they need to hire very carefully. Protocols define the process by which partners are considered for hire. They do not define departmental standards for such hires. Now, the arguments against having written policies is that they decrease institutional flexibility. So some institutions may very well want to hire a partner 
but they don't want a prescribed pathway for that. They want to be able to try all sorts of different things all at one time, and they feel that this is the best way to come to a positive outcome. Now, other reasons for not wanting to have a policy is that many administrators and faculty still believe that partner hiring encroaches on departmental autonomy, and they're concerned about waiving open searches and jeopardizing um, open competition. Now, another key issue is when to raise the partner issue. Candidates and universities are currently caught on the horns of a dilemma. Candidates, on the one hand, feel that they benefit by raising the issue as late as possible, and universities, on the other hand, feel that they need to find out about a potential partner issue as early in the process as possible so that they can do something about it. Now, our survey opens a window onto current practices. Um, as you can see here, the majority of job seekers mention a partner during the on-campus interview. The other largest group mention a partner after a verbal offer. I must say, I still give my graduate students this advice over here, but um, that may not help young people because universities have to have time to respond. When to raise the issue is of real concern to applicants. If there are two equally impressive candidates for a job, one and one may not take the job without some position for a partner, departments may opt, perhaps without fully realizing it, for the unencumbered candidate. In our survey, I think it's significant that 14% of our respondents, so 933 professors, agreed that their department had not approached or considered a candidate because it was known that he or she had an academic partner. Now, from the point of view of the university, the sooner an institution finds out about a candidate's need, the sooner it can coordinate efforts to consider a partner hire. To facilitate matters, one university in our study invites all interviewees to have a confidential meeting with the dual career program officer. You know, universities can't ask if you have a partner, and this is, this is an issue, so how can a university find out? So at this one university, all candidates have a private interview with the dual career program officer, and she kind of lays out the possibilities in a generic way and offers advice, and they can say anything to her that they want. Importantly, she does not report back to the search committee in any way about the candidate situation. So another key issue is who brokers the deal, but in um, to move on and get to our panel, I think I'll skip over this issue. Um, I think our panelists can describe how this flows through the universities. And then we come to the next issue. What counts in the hiring decision? Now, for our, our faculty, everyone agrees that it's quality, quality, quality. A second hire must be made on a case-by-case -case basis and if that person doesn't fit in your department, if it's not a good hire for you, you really shouldn't make it. Um, I know that this is hard to see as well. It's also in uh, figure 26, as you can see here. So our study showed, so when you ask faculty, this is what they respond. Our study shows that faculty are persuaded to make an offer to a second hire based on number one, the quality of the scholarship. That's 93% of the faculty agreed that that was their number one consideration. 
Number two, the fit with the, the department, 89, so a huge majority, again, agree with that. And then number three, the availability, uh, the availability of university funds, 88% of faculty agreeing with that. So there are many other issues that we could discuss. I hope that if you didn't pick up a copy of the report, you, that you will download it, you can send it to your friends, it's free, it's online, everyone can see it. The Clayman Institute for Gender Research at Stanford University, creating a more equal society for women and men through data-driven research and public education. For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.